Thank you, Gwiz, for a generous introduction. Um, a few years ago, I was asked to, uh, on behalf of the National Archives, to go out to Abilene, Kansas, and put together the Eisenhower Centennial. And uh, I'll never forget, you know, introducing myself for the first time out there. Um, I said I had been a presidential freak since I was about six years old. And uh, the next day, the local paper ran a headline, Freak to Run Eisenhower Centennial. <laughs> so be, be careful what you, uh, what you say. Anyway, I'm delighted to be here and especially pleased to see students. I've uh, started teaching for the first time uh, this, this year at uh, George Mason University. And the old cliche is true. You really learn a whole lot more than you, than you pass on. Uh, and it's great to see to see young faces here. I don't know whether you all entered the contest. I think there's a contest, um, discover did white males win valuable prizes or something by coming to, coming to these lectures. In any event, I'm delighted you're here. And we'll try to live up to the, to the introduction and, and not be too dull. Um, character was a subject yesterday. It's an appropriate, in some ways, a continuation uh, with George Washington, although he is a surprising, a much more interesting figure, I think, than than the marble statue all of us have been raised to revere and slightly fear. In the autumn of 1787, newly returned from constitution making in Philadelphia, George Washington turned his attention to more prosaic matters. The squire of Mount Vernon needed a gardener, and he approached the job search with the same psychological insight that had so impressed his fellow delegates. At length, he drew up a contract with a hard-drinking candidate after solemnly binding him to perform his duties sober for one year, quote, in Washington's words, if allowed four dollars at Christmas with which to be drunk four days and four nights, two dollars at Easter to effect the same purpose, two dollars at Whitsuntide to be drunk for two days, a dram in the morning, and a drink of grog at dinner and at noon. It was vintage Washington, a fine medley of bemused tolerance for human frailty, and the rigidly methodical demands made on himself across a lifetime of self-improvement. Forget the wintry figure of the dollar bill or the slightly comical one employed every February to sell us used cars and appliances. The real George Washington is every bit as impressive and much more human than the bloodless prig frozen in marble in a hundred city parks. Now, if it's any consolation, Washington appeared nearly as remote to his contemporaries as he does to us. Be courteous to all, intimate with few, he advised his nephew, for true friendship is a plant of slow growth. As a result, not even Martha knew all there was to know about the shrewd giant who preferred farming to politics and lost money on both. The expansive host who spent every penny of his $25,000 presidential salary, and complained that servants were drinking his Madeira. The wryly satirical observer with a cordial, not always concealed dislike of tiresome preachers, financial deadbeats, and virtually anyone with the effrontery to question his motives or challenge his dignity. The Spartan eater who favored Saturday dinners of salt cod. And the true stoic who endured near constant toothache caused by ill-fitting dentures that caused his mouth to bulge and his lips to clamp shut in unsmiling repose about those dentures. You know, it's, it's such a shame. You take out a dollar bill and you look at George Washington and he looks like a grumpy, cranky, 
not terribly pleasant character, someone you certainly wouldn't want to be stuck on a desert island with, and that is in so many ways a disservice to the real Washington, uh, who was the most charismatic figure of his age. There's not much charisma on the dollar bill. As for the dentures, you know, they are not carved from wood. They were state-of-the-art dentures. Washington went to the leading dental surgeon in America in Philadelphia uh, to have state-of-the-art dentures created before he became president. And they were actually, instead of wood, they were carved from hippopotamus tusk. Um, and one hole was thoughtfully left to fit over his one remaining tooth. And the problem, of course, is they rubbed constantly, and he was in constant pain, for which he was heavily dosed with laudanum. Laudanum is a derivative of opium. You can imagine the scandal today uh, that the President of the United States was, well, anyway. <laughs> uh, you can, it might explain a lot of things. I that <laughs> can you hear? Is that? The good. <laughs> Okay, great. Thank you. Most of us think of George Washington as a born aristocrat. He was, in fact, the eldest son of a second marriage whose prospects were far from encouraging. Losing his father when he was 11 and harboring ambivalent feelings toward his vinegary mother, Washington grew into an emotionally inaccessible man, one who channeled his considerable passions into getting ahead, nation-building, and a somewhat self-conscious pursuit of virtue. I wish I could say that he governs his temper, wrote Thomas Lord Fairfax to Mary Ball Washington in 1748. He is subject to attacks of anger on provocation, sometimes without just cause. Time would cure his 16-year-old friend of the vice, predicted Fairfax, who added that young George was a man, in his words, who will go to school all his life. A wonderful phrase, who will go to school all his life. That's the key to George Washington. This was prophetic. No intellectual. Washington read men the way others read books. As a young soldier called to the defense of his colony, he saw the darker side of human nature. The skulking militia, thieving speculators, and sunshine patriots who fought the French and Indians with their tongues. More galling still, he had to endure the condescension of Britain's military establishment toward the irregular colonials who refused to dress or fight according to the time-honored ways of the old world. Early in the revolution, the commanding general was forever devising brash tactics that worked better on paper than in practice. As he grew in confidence, Washington came to understand the conflict as a test of political more than military endurance. And while he might lament missed opportunities, he played the fox more often than the lion. In fact, he only fought nine major battles in the Revolution. Um, he lost more than he won. His genius was not for winning pitched battles in conventional lines. His genius for, was for inspiring men to hang on. It was perseverance. In the process, his insights into his fellow men deepened. We must make the best of mankind as they are, he once declared, since we cannot have them as we wish. Practical. George Washington harbored none of the modern reformers' illusions about human perfectibility. Men may speculate as they will, he wrote at a bleak moment 
in continental affairs. They may talk of patriotism. They may draw a few examples from current story. But who builds upon it as a sufficient basis for conducting a long and bloody war will find themselves deceived in the end. For a time, it may of itself push men to action, to bear much, to encounter difficulties. But it will not endure unassisted by interest. Washington did not fear interest. Far from it. For what else but interest had led him to amass vast land holdings, not always through the nicest of methods, or pursue youthful fame and adult fortune with an ardor that would put 21st century candidates for office to shame. He was an extraordinarily ambitious man. Classic, he was the most American. Oddly, Fisker seems so remote for him. He is so much one of us, because as a young man, he wanted very much to be rich. He wanted to be famous. He wanted to enjoy prestige and status. He achieved all of those things. None of them made him happy, and that is very American, too. There are, great, there are interests he learned greater than self-interest, and that is also very American. Causes nobler than personal enrichment. Over time, private gain took a backseat to Washington's campaign for nationhood, a campaign rooted in the radical idea that ordinary men and women could be entrusted to govern themselves. They could, that is, if they embraced public virtue. But Washington, so self-conscious about the figure he cut, it was not enough to be virtuous. He must appear to be virtuous. After the Revolution, he turned down grants of land and rejected out of hand an effort by Pennsylvania officials to petition the Continental Congress for money on his behalf. He agonized over whether to accept a gift of 150 shares in a Virginia Canal Company voted him by a grateful Virginia Assembly. He was equally torn over attending the Constitutional Convention. After all, in returning his commission at the end of the Revolution, he had pledged to retire from public life. On the other hand, he was even more passionate about the success of Republican with a small R government than he was about the usefulness of canals. And he was not happy with the feeble regime governing, if you can call it that, under the Articles of Confederation. It really wasn't a government. If you look at the Articles of Confederation, it talks about a league of states. It couldn't levy taxes. It couldn't take military action. There really wasn't very much it could do. The Confederation appears to me to be little more than a shadow without a substance, Washington complained. We are either a united people or we are not, he told James Madison in 1785. If we are not, let us no longer act a farce by pretending to be. He had personal as well as political reasons to hold back. To his surrogate son, Lafayette, Washington wrote, I am not only retired from all public employment, but I am retiring into myself. The Washingtons were a short-lived breed, and in his mid-50s, the general regarded himself as living on borrowed time. In fact, the Washington men, a uh, few of them lived beyond 40. That wasn't all. More happiness was to be found, said Washington, quote, in the sequestered walks of connubial life, a rather convoluted way of saying marriage, than in the giddy rounds of promiscuous pleasure. I don't have to interpret that. <laughs> or the more tumultuous and imposing scenes of successful ambition. In public, protocol had forced him to walk a narrow line between aloofness and accessibility. At Mount Vernon, 
the place he loved most in all the world, Washington could relax his guard without lowering his standards. Formal dress gave way to buckskin breeches and tall boots. My manner of living is plain, he wrote soon after the revolution, when the house became, in the sardonic words of its owner, a well-resorted tavern. A glass of wine and a bit of mutton are always welcome. Those who expect more will be disappointed. In fact, Washington was overrun with visitors whose curiosity was their ticket of admission. Um, we, we know from his diaries that one year, for example, he and Martha welcomed 600 guests in the course of a year, most of whom were perfect strangers. That's why if you go to Mount Vernon today, you'll see two houses. You'll see the old house. And then after the revolution, Washington built on a wing with the public rooms and another wing with the very private rooms including a new bedroom for he and Martha and his study. And basically, there's no connecting between the two. This was a man who lived a compartmentalized life long before that term became popular. At Mount Vernon, Washington gave free reign to his talent for innovation. He abandoned tobacco for wheat. He invented a plow to break the crumbly red soil. He scooped out mud from the Potomac with which to fertilize his fields. He was a self-taught architect. He mixed sand with fresh paint to make his wooden house look like stone. He was an inveterate lover of gadgets who delighted in a tin shower bath, a washstand that doubled as a card table, and a fan chair whose petals let him shoo away flies. The new nation envisioned in the unratified Constitution reflected both his inventiveness and his practicality. Still, it was with considerable reluctancy that he had consented to join 54 other delegates summoned to Philadelphia in the summer of 1787. And even by the standards of the day, this is not a representative bunch. 55 white men, needless to say, no African Americans, no women, uh, overwhelmingly Protestants, plantation owners, lawyers, the governing class, the genius of the founders was that they created a constitution and a system that could over time become more representative, could uh, with the right leadership uh, become more reflective, more truly democratic than the generation that created it. Washington arrived in Philadelphia fully aware of his symbolic importance to a nation that was more conceptual than real. His mere presence at the Pennsylvania State House elevated a gathering whose product might otherwise have gone out to the world a political orphan. Nor was it lost on his colleagues that their presiding officer, who had already, in effect, been president of the colonies, exercising administrative, diplomatic, and political sovereignty throughout eight years of war, would almost certainly fill the as yet undefined role of executive if, big if, if he could be persuaded to risk a jealously guarded reputation. At the convention itself, Washington presided in majestic silence. He only spoke once, as delegates debated a government that would almost certainly be entrusted to his care. His Virginia neighbor, George Mason, argued for a multiple executive and an advisory council of state to delegate and disperse authority. Think how history would have been different if Mason had had his way. To Mason, the proposed presidency held by one man was in fact an elective monarchy. Uh, he was not alone in his objections. Thomas Jefferson disliked the provision allowing for re-election 
at the end of four years. James Monroe criticized the Electoral College. Small wonder, then, that Alexander Hamilton should use the word indispensable to describe Washington as the only man in America who could calm the fears of such critics and give legitimacy to the experiment. Now, imagine yourselves for a minute in the presence of George Washington in the spring of 1789. The man before you was 57 years old. That doesn't sound like much. By the standards of its day, Washington would have been almost 80 years old. This was an old man who was being asked to shoulder the, the burdens of the presidency. Of noble carriage and regal gravitas, at six feet three inches tall, he towered over most of his contemporaries by at least half a foot. Washington's 200 pounds were evenly distributed over a bony, muscular frame hardened by a lifetime of outdoor exercise and physical adversity. At the height of his fame, Washington is no longer at the peak of his form. The chestnut hair of his youth was turning white. Washington was a redhead in his early days, as was Alexander Hamilton, as was Thomas Jefferson, as was the Marquis de Lafayette. So remember, if nothing else from this lecture, that you owe your liberties to redheads. <coughs> His low, but, and also he never wore a wig. That's another, if you can impress your, your friends. His low, rather indistinct voice made him anything but a great communicator. In fact, he was painfully awkward when delivering a speech. His memory was failing, or so he claimed his hearing was unreliable. Most of all, he dreaded the presidency's inevitable toll on his popularity and reputation. He likened his situation to that of a culprit, bound to his place of execution. I fear I must bid adieu to happiness, Washington blurted out to a friend only days before his first inaugural. For I see nothing but clouds and darkness before me, and I call God to witness that the day which shall carry me again into public life will be a more distressing one than any I have ever yet known. Then he fired off to Hamilton and John Jay a list of painfully earnest inquiries. The first attempt to define a working presidency. Would it be appropriate, he asked, for the executive to make himself available to members of the public every morning at 8 o'clock? What about hosting regular small dinners for, quote, distinguished characters? Or large-scale public entertainments on the 4th of July and other national holidays? Presidential tours when Congress was in recess? Meanwhile, said lawmakers were furiously debating what the new head of government should be called. Members of the Senate favored the higher tone, His Highness, the President of the United States and Protector of their Liberties. The new Vice President, John Adams, was appalled when the House of Representatives, the so-called People's House, urged that Washington be addressed simply as the President of the United States. What would the common people of other countries think of such a title, said Adams? They will despise him to all eternity. John Adams had many gifts, but he was not a prophet. For his part, Washington had other more pressing concerns. Chronically short of cash, the president-elect was forced to borrow money from a friend to cover travel expenses to his inaugural in New York in, in April 1789. 10,000 people stood outside Federal Hall to see him take the oath of office. I have no lust for power, Washington insisted. This did not mean that he had no taste for politics. Indeed, no small part of Washington's genius uh, as, a, as a politician, was his ability to convince everyone, beginning with himself, that he was no politician at all. 
Quote, in politics as in religion, my tenets are few and simple, he wrote, the leading one of which is to be honest and just ourselves and to exact it from others, meddling as little as possible in their affairs where our own are not involved. The platform might be a simple one, but George Washington was anything but a simple man. In many ways, his vision of the American Republic was an extension of his own character. Because he credited harsh self-discipline in realizing his personal destiny, he embraced an energetic government as the only means of protecting the American Union from flying apart. Because he balanced executive vigor with personal restraint, he gave us a government strong enough to lead and wise enough to listen. In a nation that has yet existed on paper only, his friend Henry Knox spoke the truth when he said that it was Washington's character and not the freshly signed Constitution that held the raw republic together. Think about that. The Constitution was a scrap of parchment that never would have been ratified, except people were absolutely convinced that George Washington would be the first president, and only would they entrust to Washington this this radical document convinced that, uh, you know, after all, he had turned down the chance to be a king once. They trusted Washington with power. A revolutionary on the battlefield in office, Washington was a cautious man with much to be cautious about. There's a wonderful scene. He, he was a literalist. He took very literally the words of this document. And remember, it talks about the president seeking the advice and consent of the Senate for treaties uh, and nominations. So what does he do? On August 22nd, 1789, the president goes down to Federal Hall, he goes to the Senate, and he personally delivers a proposed treaty with the southern Indian tribes for legislative approval. Well, of course, naively, he thinks that the Senate is going to act on it on the spot. Um, then as now, lawmakers were jealous of their prerogatives. Realizing that no immediate decision would be forthcoming, Washington briefly lost his temper. He had a Hell of a temper. Um, his secretary, his presidential secretary, Tobias Lear, said no sound on earth compared with that of George Washington swearing a blue streak. Um, but he'd spent a lifetime controlling his temper. Quickly, he regained his composure. The embarrassed president gracefully withdrew from the legislative halls. In private, however, Washington nursed his grievance against the dilatory senators, insisting that he would be, in his words, damned rather than face such public humiliation a second time. He proved a man of his word, never went back, and neither has any of his successors. That one totally unscripted action defined the relationship between the president and the Senate. In fact, every action Washington took set a precedent to guide or limit his successors, another reason for caution. It was Washington who designated a site for the new nation's permanent capital, while spurning the suggestion of one congressman from South Carolina who wanted the federal city to be named Washingtonopolis. <laughs> kind of trips off the tongue, doesn't it? Sensitive as a tuning fork, Washington regularly inquired into what others said and thought of him. His uneasiness grew in the first year of his presidency, thanks to whispered complaints about the allegedly royalist trappings of the executive household. Now, remember, we had just gotten rid of a king. And there were a lot of Americans who worried that the Constitution created too strong a government, and they had an eagle eye on the president. Even though it was Washington, they wanted to make absolutely certain that um, the royalist trappings of George III didn't uh, poison you know, the, the, uh, the new nation. Now, talk about unroyalist. 
Every Tuesday afternoon, you could walk into George Washington's house on Broadway in New York at 2 o'clock. As long as you were decently attired, you could walk in to a, a reception. And these were sort of less than spontaneous, but nevertheless, um, Washington would walk into the room uh, in a suit of native broadcloth, um, his hair powdered in a hair bag, and everyone would form a circle, and Washington would walk around, and uh, he didn't shake hands. That was overly democratic. The first president to shake hands was Thomas Jefferson, who famously used to greet visitors to the, at the front door of the White House himself, sometimes in his bathroom slippers and, and robe. Uh, very democratic. But the fact is, Washington was walking this fine tightrope. He wanted to be accessible, but he didn't want to be too accessible. One of the interesting, odd debates that took place is, should a president of the United States attend dinner parties, private dinner parties? Should a president of the United States attend funerals? Um, it was finally decided yes and no. Um, the, um, every Thursday afternoon, he had a dinner, in effect a state dinner, for members of Congress and others on a rotating basis. Um, God, can you imagine keeping George Washington waiting? Uh, waiting? He was a very punctual man. And he had a wonderful line. Uh, any hostess here is welcome to, to use it. Uh, he waited five minutes for tardy guests to arrive before he entered the dining room. Sir, he told latecomers, we are too punctual for you. I have a cook who never asks whether the company has come, but whether the hour has come. At that point, no doubt you would slink into the dining room, uh, put in your place, probably not open your mouth for the rest of the, of the dinner. One of Washington's dinner guests recounted, he is generally sedate and serious, and only after having had two or three glasses of wine, and when roused by the conversation around him, does his face assume an expression of liveliness. With sufficient champagne, it was added, the president became positively merry. <laughs> he also had the same toast. He always, at the end of dinner, he would uh, raise his glass and toast to all our friends. Politics is theater, then and now, and Washington was a natural-born actor. His dramatic flair had been perfected on the military stage. He loved to go to the theater. Um, and, um, and he was a, a, a marvelous actor. You know, Ronald Reagan was not our first actor president. Uh, George Washington was. There's a wonderful scene after the Revolution um, when there's an almost, a near mutiny by the Continental Army. They haven't been paid by Congress. And Washington is summoned to this mutinous, you know, group of soldiers who are prepared to march on Philadelphia to get their own way. And it's extraordinary. He talks to them. He sympathizes with them. He assures them that he will do everything he can to, to correct the situation. And then for evidence, he, he reaches into his pocket. He pulls out a letter from a member of Congress. And very theatrically, he sort of fumbles with this. And then he removes his glasses, and he begs the pardon of his audience. And he apologizes. He said, I have, um, I have already gone, I've, I've already grown old in the service of my country. I'm now growing blind. Well, you can imagine, I mean, the reaction instantly, you know, 
the rebellion kind of, you know, it's like the souffle falls. <laughs> and, um, and the irony is he'd been wearing glasses for years. But, you know, offered magic, who insists on logic? And Washington gave them this amazing theatrical moment. Uh, again, if he hadn't done that, if he hadn't had those instincts, if he hadn't had those skills, who knows? The army might have marched on Philadelphia. We'd be a very different country today. As president, he traveled extensively in tours that are every bit as choreographed as, as a presidential visit today. Um, he would ride 40 or 50 miles in a coach. And when he came to the outskirts of a town, and there weren't many towns. Remember, the largest city in the United States, Philadelphia, had fewer than 40,000 people. There were only five places in America with more than 10,000 people. But in any event, uh, when he would come to the outskirts of a town, the routine would unfold. He would get out of his carriage. He would get on this enormous white charger called Prescott and ride into town. And, you know, people never forgot it. I mean, you know, remember, this is a time when most Americans lived and died within 25 miles of, of where they were born. Um, no television, no internet, no uh, YouTube. Um, and um, this was theater. Uh, and uh, it created him. And Washington understood. He understood that his role as the first president was not only to see, but even more to be seen. He made this experiment tangible. He personalized the government. By the way, no spontaneous speeches. Even the most innocuous words of greeting had to be vetted the day before he arrived. Some things, again, haven't changed. A century before Teddy Roosevelt invented the bully pulpit, Washington was preaching the virtues of religious tolerance. In Newport, Rhode Island, he visited a synagogue. His response to the congregation's greeting remains a classic expression of American pluralism. Quote, all possess alike liberty of conscience and immunities of citizenship. For happily, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens. A republic of virtue, he was suggesting, would guarantee nothing less. In 1790, government pulled up stakes, it left New York, <clears throat> for 10 years it moved to Philadelphia as a way station before going down to the Potomac and the city not known as Washingtonopolis. Um, it was amazing how much could be done, Washington told visitors, if one was always doing. Thus, he found time to visit his Philadelphia stables every morning and still complete a few hours of paperwork before breakfast at 8. Breakfast at 190 Market Street was a Spartan business. Two small platters of sliced tongue sat on the table next to some dry toast, bread and butter, quote, but no broiled fish, as is the general custom, recalled one visitor. There was but little appearance of form. One servant only attended, who had no livery. A silver urn for hot water was the only article of expense on the table. The president buttered his own corn cakes. Mrs. Washington poured tea and coffee. After breakfast, the president pitched into his steward's account book, reviewing the previous day's household expenditures. On learning that a young relation by marriage had drained 56 bottles of wine in entertaining visitors to Mount Vernon, Washington enjoined a less spacious hospitality, telling his manager that there were but three classes of people who deserved fine Madeira. First, quote, my particular and intimate acquaintances, 
Secondly, some of the most respectable, underline respectable foreigners. I don't know what the non-respectable foreigners get. And thirdly, to persons of some distinction, such as members of Congress, who may be traveling through the country. His accounts in order, Washington called in his secretary for look at overnight correspondence. Now, it's hard to imagine in this era, you remember what this year's federal budget is? And would take a stab? I mean, you're paying for it, you, you ought to know. $2.7 trillion. George Washington employed more people at Mount Vernon than he did in the entire executive branch of government. The first federal budget was around $2 million. The United States Army numbered 600 men. At the State Department, Jefferson found a toy bureaucracy of five clerks spending $8,000 a year. The Constitution says nothing about a cabinet. Washington established it on his own initiative as a sort of privy council. Quote, that there is a diversity of interest in the Union, no one has denied, he told a friend who had warned regional animosities. He moved aggressively to knit the sections together. Remember, the United States in 1790 is three countries. There's New England, there are the Middle Atlantic states, and there's the South. The South is Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia. He organized, in effect, a coalition government around a cabinet made up of men from Massachusetts, New York, and Virginia. Next to geography and philosophy, personal ability governed his appointments. Old soldiers received little special consideration. The president's kin, none at all. And if there's any consolation to subsequent presidents, including the incumbent, not even the father of his country got his way on everything. On one memorable occasion, the Senate rejected his nomination of John Rutledge of South Carolina to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court on the grounds of insanity. <laughs> Apparently, the only thing really that was insane about John Rutledge was he had um, alienated the uh, Senate of the United States. Another precedent. Inevitably, Washington's cabinet became an arena of conflict. Its protagonist stock figures, or stick figures, in later history books, led by Jefferson, the aristocrat who lived on a mountaintop and considered himself a friend to man, versus Hamilton, the self-made elitist with a Calvinist belief in original sin and no shortage of personal experience to back it up. <laughs> Taking note of Hamilton's reputation as a ladies' man, Martha Washington gave his name to the house pet, a large-headed, extremely amorous tomcat. I love that story. <laughs> we don't know what Hamilton thought about that. but Like fire and frost, Hamilton and Jefferson were temperamental opposites whom not even Washington could reconcile. Two centuries before Bill Clinton and his aggressive young campaign team declared it's the economy, stupid, Washington reserved to put his country's credit on a sound basis. I think I see a path as clear and direct as a ray of light, he wrote, which, if pursued, will ensure permanent felicity to the Commonwealth. Here was a coded endorsement of the Hamiltonian program, combining a strong central government with a unified financial structure topped by a presidential cult of personality bordering on adulation. Hamilton, in fact, wanted as Secretary of the Treasury, to put, him, uh, to put Washington's profile on the nation's coinage, an idea that was rejected by the House of Representatives as incompatible with Republican virtue. Not until he died did that happen. 
there was no formally organized opposition party at the outset but there was no shortage of anti federalists whose earliest suspicions of the constitution were confirmed by hamilton seeming disregard for the rights of states and the interests of farmers whom jefferson called god's chosen people washington skills were put to the test in the first week of 1791 the issue at hand was whether or not to charter a national bank winchpin of the hamiltonian system Jefferson and Attorney General Edmund Randolph opposed the idea, basing their stance on a narrow reading of Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution, which authorizes Congress to, quote, make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. Few imagined it at the time, but the future course of American Union pivoted on those Delphic adjectives, necessary and proper. For Jefferson, convenience should not be confused with necessity. There was nothing in the Constitution that authorized a federal bank, said the Secretary of State. He buttressed his claim by citing the unratified Tenth Amendment, which reserved to the states all powers not clearly enumerated in the Constitution. For Jefferson, this was an acid test, that the, this was a confederation. There's not a nation in the way that you and I understand it. This was... Um, an improvement on the League of States, but it was still very much a, a, a government where states had rights. Shaken by the force of such arguments, Washington invited Hamilton to refute his detractors. Using ridicule, where logic did not suffice, Hamilton exposed the inconsistencies of strict constructionism. A government empowered to build lighthouses to promote commerce could hardly balk at chattering a bank to collect its taxes, pay its salaries, or service its debt. Hamilton's plea for the bank did not convert the president so much as it reinforced his nationalistic outlook. He signed the bank bill, and the rest is history. Striving to remain above the partisan fray, Washington was careful to label the new regime national rather than federalist. He did not want anyone to believe that he had been, in effect, taken over by one political party or another. Many historians have described him as a bit player in his own administration. Uh, someone shunted to the wings by more dynamic actors like Hamilton and Jefferson. An Eisenhower-like chairman of the board, uneasily presiding over an opinionated squad of advisors whose intellectual firepower matched their talent for recrimination. I think it's more accurate to say that he was sufficiently sure of himself to allow Hamilton and Jefferson this street brawl. Remember, what did Washington want to do? Washington wanted to buy time. Washington wanted to avoid the onset of intense partisan political struggle as long as he could. Um, basically, his great success was to keep Hamilton and Jefferson inside the tent, I won't quote J. Edgar Hoover, um, at a time when uh, both of them wanted to be outside the tent. The political general had not lost his touch. If his first term was dominated by Hamilton's economic program at home, his second term was defined by war overseas and the domestic stresses it provided. Ultimately, I would argue Washington proved more visionary than either of his warring subordinates. Stay out of Europe's murderous quarrels, he reasoned, and given 20 or 30 years of peaceful development, the United States would be in a position to defy any power on earth. So when England and France went to war, Washington took it upon himself to issue a neutrality proclamation 
an extraordinary exercise of power and another step that defined the presidency in ways that the, the men who wrote the Constitution probably uh, could never have imagined. Only Washington had the prestige, by the way, to make it stick. He sent John Jay, the Chief Justice, to, to England to defuse a war scare, and he shouldered the blame. He personally took the blame and the political heat when Jay brought back an unpopular treaty that enraged Jefferson's followers. The House of Representatives demanded he turn over all papers arising out of Jay's mission, and Washington refused. And in doing so, he invented what we call executive privilege, a doctrine that would come to be abused occasionally, but which started uh, as a bulwark against an otherwise imperial Congress. There's something called the Whiskey Rebellion, which sounds kind of vaguely comical in western Pennsylvania. Um, remember, there was no coinage. There's no currency, as you and I know money. Whiskey often served that purpose. It served many purposes in western Pennsylvania. But it was, uh, it was actually a kind of a currency. And they didn't want to pay a tax on it. And Hamilton wanted it taxed to support his system. Well, it was unpopular, and there was actually a mini-rebellion brewing in western Pennsylvania, and this was a real test of the government. Washington, the only president in American history thus far who put on a military uniform as president, got on horseback and led an army of 16,000 men, about 10 times as many as you needed to crush this revolt. But he was demonstrating the force and the prestige and, yes, the power of the central government. Um, he put his own prestige behind a principle critical to any republic, namely that dissatisfied minorities can protest peacefully, but they cannot take arms against even the most unpopular official acts. Finally, in his famous and often misunderstood farewell address, Washington left behind a roadmap to genuine national independence and a timeless warning about the excesses of political parties. The strong leader of a weak nation, Washington threw all his prestige on the scales of constitutional government. Still, no constitution by itself could begin the world over or make human beings into angels. Washington, of all men, understood the limits of virtue. The best he could realistically hope for was to create political institutions that would inhibit the baser side of men while channeling their energies into subduing the continent and fulfilling the promise of Republican government. It was against this backdrop in his farewell address that he warned his fellow countrymen against what he called the small but artful and enterprising minority whose primary allegiance was to a party. In their place, the president demanded, quote, a government of as much vigor as is consistent with the perfect security of liberty. He had the balance 200 years ago. Absolutely right. It's a balance that 200 years later we're still debating. But he defined it. His private life, though not without its trials, provided a satisfying counterpoint to the splendid misery of partisan combat. When the Philadelphia Aurora, an opposition newspaper, revealed that he had overdrawn his salary to pay the heavy cost of official entertaining, Washington suffered the tortures of the damned but he never complained in public. Privately, he railed against newspaper editors who were, he said, stuffing their papers with scurrility and nonsensical declamation. A complaint, no doubt, made in somewhat more pungent language by every president since. I will never forget, when you, anyone who wants to write about Washington, they, they're faced with the challenge of 
making this marble man human. And I despaired of it at the beginning when I was working on my book. And then I realized, first of all, what, Washington is most human when he's most vulnerable. And that's the last 10 years of his life. He's an old man. I've already described some of his weaknesses. He's a vulnerable figure. And his greatest sacrifice was to give up peace of mind, to give up life at Mount Vernon on this untested new experiment. But it was even more personal than that. I'll never forget one day at Mount Vernon, I found in the, in the archives a letter written near the end of her life by his adopted granddaughter, uh, Patsy uh, Custis, known as Nellie in the family. Washington, of course, had no children of his own. He was very sensitive about that fact. He liked children very much. Martha had children. They died, but he then, in effect, adopted her grandchildren. Nellie was one of them. Anyway, Nellie recalled before she died a story that I think tells you volumes about Washington and the price that he paid. Um, his office was in the same building as his residence in Philadelphia. And at the end of a long day of paperwork and meetings, he would leave his office, walk down the hall, and open the door into the room where Nellie and her playmates were. And like many old men, he, uh, he drew a kind of sustenance from seeing young people at play. The problem was, the minute the children looked up and they saw standing there the figure known as Great Washington, they froze. Um, and it all came back to me. This was a man who, for the last 25 years of his life, found it impossible to be totally natural, even around his own grand granddaughter and her playmates. Uh, he had been embalmed while he was still alive. He had been turned into a marble statue. It's like Midas's touch in reverse. His advice to a female relation who was contemplating marriage speaks volumes. Listen to this, George Washington on marriage. Experience will convince you that there is no truth more certain than that all our enjoyments fall short of our expectations. And to none does it apply with more force than to the gratification of our passions. There is sadness distilled in those words, along with wisdom. Bleak as it may sound, Washington's assessment of the most basic human desire, to love and to be loved, tells us a great deal about what was missing in his life. But it also suggests a cold-blooded realism that made him impervious to the political passions of his day. Today, he strikes many of us as literally too good to be true. The poet Robert Frost knew better. George Washington wrote Frost was one of the few in the whole history of the world who was not carried away by power. No action of Washington's did more to shape the presidency than his voluntarily, voluntary relinquishment of power at the end of two terms, a self-denying measure formally incorporated in the Constitution by Republicans who were dancing on Franklin Roosevelt's grave in 1951. Such renunciation led George III, otherwise no admirer of his erstwhile subject, to call Washington the greatest man on earth. On the morning of March 4th, 1797, George Washington donned his best black velvet suit and walked to Congress Hall. For his final act as president, he would dispense with coaches, prancing horses, and flanking postillions. Not so the president-elect, who arrived for his inauguration resplendent in a pearl-colored suit of native broadcloth set off by a dress sword and cockaded hat. However foolish these martial touches appeared on squat John Adams, 
They were unavoidable in a nation too young to have traditions unsanctified by Washington. Adams knew that this inaugural day would be illuminated by the setting, not the rising sun. Wherever he looked, the new president beheld streaming eyes. At one point, the president-elect covered his own face to disguise a flood of tears. Nor was Washington immune to the intense emotions surrounding the historic transfer about to take place. It was probably just as well that he was not called upon to speak during the brief ceremony. The inaugural address, the new president waddled up the aisle and out of the hall. Ex-President Washington motioned for Vice President Jefferson to follow, but the tall Virginian in his blue frock coat held back out of deference. Washington repeated the gesture a bit more forcefully, and then the Vice President reluctantly preceded him to the door. Outside, a large crowd cheered Washington, slowing his progress down Chestnut Street. A few, however, rejoiced at his departure. Unrepentant to the last, the Philadelphia Aurora proclaimed, quote, every heart ought to beat high with exaltation that the name of Washington from this day ceases to give a currency to political iniquity and to legalize corruption. Washington declined to engage his nemesis in public debate. Privately, he confided to a friend, quote, this man, referring to the editor of the Aurora, this man has celebrity in a certain way for his calumnies are to be exceeded only by his impudence, and both stand unrivaled. <laughs> With his usual quiet competence, Tobias Lear saw to the packing of 97 boxes, 14 trunks, 43 casks, 13 packages, and three hampers for transport on the Swoop Salem. Oh yes, and the tin shower bath went too. <laughs> Lear would perform a still more personal service on a blank December night less than three years later, ministering to his friend as Washington lay dying at Mount Vernon from a lethally sore throat. By then, Washington had performed one of his greatest services to his country. In the autumn of 1798, the ex-president retreated to his study at Mount Vernon and scratched out a 28-page will whose opening lines contained an unmistakable political testament. I, George Washington, of Mount Vernon, a citizen of the United States, and lately president of the same, not a citizen of Virginia, not as a Tidewater aristocrat or a Southerner, but as an American. Washington reasserted the nationalist creed to which he had devoted 40 years of his life. Like other thoughtful men, he had struggled to reconcile his ownership of human beings with his country's professed love of liberty. He had hoped that Virginia's legislature would take the decision out of his hands by providing for gradual emancipation of that state's slaves. The chances of such action, always faint, grew still more remote as the lawmakers in Richmond talked openly of defying federal authority. And so it was left to Washington himself to free his slaves on Martha's death after making certain that the aged or sick among them would be fed and clothed by his heirs. He took an even more radical step in challenging his state's legal ban on educating Negroes directing that all under the age of 25 should be taught to read and write, and quote in Washington words, brought up to some useful occupation. And I do hereby expressly forbid the sale or transportation out of the said commonwealth of any slave I may die possessed of, under any pretense whatever. And then, as if to reinforce his determination, Washington added a clause ordering his executives to carry out these wishes, quote, religiously, without evasion, neglect, 
or delay. I'm often asked, uh, what was Washington's greatest accomplishment? And it's hard. There are so many. But I don't think it was winning the revolution, although if he hadn't done that, again, we wouldn't be here. Um, nor even his presidency, during which he almost never set a foot wrong. I think the great, the ultimate greatness of Washington was he redefined the meaning, the word, uh, the meaning of the word greatness. You stop and think, before Washington, to be great was uh, to conquer one's enemy, to occupy his territory, uh, to kill as many of his men and soldiers as it took to establish one's own sovereignty. Washington redefined greatness, not as accumulating power, but as dispersing power, as walking away from supreme authority. He did it once at the end of the revolution. He did it again at the end of the presidency. And he transformed this country as a result. On his deathbed, on a windswept spit called St. Helena, Napoleon said to no one in particular, they wanted me to be another Washington. But of course, that was not possible. Uh, Washington is one of those extraordinary, almost unique figures in history of whom it can be said that concede his humanity and you confirm his heroism. Thank you very much. Thank you. I think we've got a few minutes if you've got questions, comments, observations. The question about the influence of Hamilton on Washington. Well, the influence was great, but I think in some ways it's been misunderstood. Um, there are those who believe that Hamilton, well, that Washington was almost his puppet. Uh, Washington was no one's puppet. The fact is, Hamilton and Washington, they, Hamilton was a kind of surrogate son in some ways. Uh, but he was very prickly personality. He had become very close to the general during the revolution, and then he had actually staged uh, an argument uh, to declare his own independence. And as a measure of Washington's largeness, that he didn't hold a grievance, he didn't uh, hold a grudge against Hamilton, that he brought Hamilton into the cabinet, made him Secretary of the Treasury, without a doubt the most important Secretary of the Treasury in American history. He, def he, he defined American capitalism and, um, and really in many ways shaped the American government. But in doing that, he was acting very much in line with Washington's own preferences. That's the reason why I quoted Washington before his inauguration. He thought he saw a path. Well, guess what? It was the path that Hamilton saw, too. Yeah? What was his greatest failure and or disappointment? Hmm, that's a good question. Well, he was certainly, he was aging. And um, his greatest disappointment was he didn't want to run for a second term. In fact, he actually thought he might quit halfway through his first term. Um, and it quickly became apparent that wasn't, uh, that wasn't practical. He really didn't want to run for a second term. And interestingly, you know, I found a marvelous letter. It was a woman, a friend of his named Eliza Powell in Philadelphia. She was the wife of the mayor. And she understood Washington's vanity. And she appealed to his vanity to get him to run for a second term. She wrote to him saying that, now if you walk away now, before the experiment is completed, posterity will say of you 
that you only remained on stage to gain the cheers and adulation of your countrymen. She knew what buttons to push. <laughs> and in the end, Washington was persuaded that he really had no choice. But there was no way he was going to run for a third term. That was probably his biggest disappointment. His biggest failure, I would argue, as president was, um, I, I, toward the end, I think he became unwittingly very much a, a, a Federalist, a member of the Federalist Party. Uh, he and Jefferson had a falling out. Uh, Jefferson, quite frankly, could be rather duplicitous. Jefferson convinced himself that he was completely apolitical, and in fact, he was really the founder of the Democratic Party. And Jefferson is writing these private letters, which are highly critical of Washington. And of course, there's no such thing as a private letter then or now. It wound up on the, on the equivalent of the front page of the Washington Post. And, um, I, and I think there was a secretary of the Attorney General, Edmund Randolph, who was a Virginian friend of Jefferson's, who Washington fired on suspicion of colluding with the French. And the, the evidence was thin. It's still debated 200 years later whether Randolph should have been treated the way he was. But I think at that point, Washington was beginning to be suspicious about enemies. Um, and there, there was no shortage of them. But I think his hold, in some ways, was beginning to weaken. He knew, he knew himself. He knew it wasn't simply he didn't want to run for a second term because he didn't want the burden of the presidency. I think he had a very shrewd grasp of his own strengths and his own weaknesses, and he didn't want to test the latter.